This is part two of three of Rebel with a Cause, Remembering Phoenicia Medrano, an episode of the Voices for Nature and Peace podcast. Question three. What did Finn do? What was Finn's work about? Granny's work was twofold, living a life planting back in the wild and teaching people about it. For many years, she lived mostly on her own, traveling by horse and wild tending across the western United States. During this time, she accumulated a body of knowledge about flora and fauna, and specifically traditional first foods, that was both wide and deep, which placed her among a small number of living human beings. I've certainly met many trained botanists with degrees whose knowledge paled compared to hers. Partly this was due to her sheer experience, but partly to a way of experiencing that's much different than book learning and scientific field work. She did not merely study the land, she lived with the land. Hers was a life of devotion, not just observation. She harvested, planted, ate, and shot out that land, and loved it, with attention and intention. Over many seasons, this intimacy gave her a perspective that can be found no other way. Few were those who could be called her peer. At some point, she was called to open her bundle, that is, to teach what she had learned to others. By her own account, she took on this vocation reluctantly, and never loved it, but did it because it was what must be done. She complained, but she stuck with it. Hundreds of people, probably thousands actually, met Granny over the years and were exposed to her wisdom. She made a mark that will last, but it was not a mark for herself. It was a mark for the plants, for the wild, and for the planet. Man, that's a big one. I think she did so much. People get hung up on the on the hoop stuff she did, and that was a huge part of, of what she did in her life. But Phoenicia was so much more than that. She was the living example of the outsider in a culture which, in fact, leaves no real space for the outsider. They might pretend that they do, but we have names for people like that. Bum, drifter, no good Nick. You know, there's, right. there's a whole wealth of names that we foist upon people who... Uh, refuse to comply with the way that we tell them things are and who Finn was sane. She's one of the few sane, truly sane people. I mean, she had her demons. God damn. She had issues. Yes, she did. (laughs) But she was sane. She knew she had issues. She wasn't denying it. She wasn't making, she would make excuses sometimes, but mostly she wasn't a person to make excuses. She'd be like, yeah, my development is juvenilized permanently at nine years old. That's where it stopped. (laughs) She'd just come right out with it. So I think almost more importantly than her, than her work with the plants was her, um, embodiment of a living example of that it's possible to exist outside of the system. And she, she lived a, in a hard way. But that part of that was her own choosing. She made it in some ways harder than it had to be just because she was such a principled person. And she wouldn't she wouldn't pretend that she wanted to do something because it was convenient to do that. She'd say, no, I'm not going to do this. And she was, she was obstinate in her own way. But I think for me, that was the most important part of Phoenicia's work was that showing, showing this culture or the people of this culture who came to her that um, they were entitled that they had an enormous complex of issues to sort through before they could even think about doing any kind of work outside that wasn't totally based upon their own aggrandizement or self-centeredness or selfishness or petulant, you know, spoiled little attitude about everything. She was 
she had such a keen wit and a, and a sharp intelligence, and she had turned that on the system that rejected her. And so maybe part of what you could say part of what she saw was sour grapes, but I didn't see it that way. I felt like she had a lot of clarity about uh, social conditioning and social engineering, and she was good at that too. She would turn it against the very powers that try to wield it against you. She'd pick that sword right up and put the point right at their throat and say, okay, baby. <laughs> she had tricks. She knew she knew how to navigate through that system that terrifies most people. You get pulled over by the cops and you're just like, oh, shit, hide my stash. Oh, God damn it. And they're like, what are you so nervous about? You know, but she would just get right on their wavelength. And by the end of it, she I mean, she had that bandolier full of cop patches from all over her travels. She crisscrossed the country with a horse and goddamn wagon on the fucking freeway part of it, you know. And they would stop her and be like, well, what in the hell are you doing? She's like, what do you think I'm doing? I'm trying to get down the road. <laughs> <laughs> or she would carry these uh, 22 Magnum buttline revolvers. And um, and a cop asked her about that one time. She's like, you got one? <laughs> <laughs> so for me, that's really what, that's really more the work that Granny did. Of course, her work with the plants was, was enormously important. And, and just bringing that issue to it, to people's to, to people's attention, you wouldn't know, almost nobody knows about it. And uh, she just yeah, she was just a a hell of a character, the kind you don't see too often in this culture of of what's that word homogeneity, mm-hmm. where you just you just flow with what's happening. You don't try to stick out. You don't try to stand out. And goddamn, she stood out wherever she went. You know, people would see her and be like, who are you? You know, and it was more than her presentation, too. It was like an energy she carried with her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She changed my life, for sure, meeting that being and and just seeing like, oh, wow. She's one of those kind of once in a lifetime people that you meet. I don't know if I'll ever meet anyone where I'm like, huh, that person's kind of like Phoenicia. It hasn't happened yet. (laughs) (laughs) She was so ballsy. And this culture, and she was so vulgar, and I just loved it. It just made me titter and giggle like a little schoolgirl, you know, because she would just go there. And she didn't care who she offended. You know, it was like part of the, whoever it was that didn't like what she said, she didn't care. And there was like, you could say that's quote unquote insensitive or whatever, but she was so sensitive in other ways that I can't fault her for being insensitive in that way. Mm Mm-hmm. She was the most extreme in a way that made an opening of possibility for others. That there's so many people that she touched along the way that have done varying degrees or continue to do varying degrees of her work um, and, and, and her passion. And she kind of like pushed the edge as far as it could go so that there was just this opening for the rest of us to see, oh yeah, there is all this stuff that's possible because most people, if you tell them stories about her, it sounds crazy. Like there's (laughs) a lot of stories about her are just like unreal. And I might not fully believe them if I didn't know other people who corroborate those stories who were there, who were part of them, right? But that was the thing is that all of that stuff being so over the top made so much more possible for so many other people. And she strived to be what she understood, what it means to be fully human in in constant reciprocity with all life. And she would grieve 
that we're all permanently juvenileized motherfuckers that none of us know how to be fully human. And she would include herself in that, even that she went to that extreme and was so radical in her ways that she would include herself to say, you know, even I am not fully human and can never be, but that she lived her life striving to be as close to that as possible within the context that she was born and lived and to embody the truth as she saw it and walk in beauty way, as she called it, to, to live in reciprocity, to carry your own weight, to give more than you take, to always come bearing gifts, madly in love with the truth of that. And by the time I met her, at least, you know, she, by the time I met her, she was kind of on her way out. And she was saying, I used to have a hope in life. And now I only have a hope in death. And she couldn't stop feeding life. Like it wasn't, it wasn't within her being to stop feeding life. But she was, she was definitely heartbroken by the time I met her that her heart broke when, when her body wouldn't let her stay on her horses anymore. And I don't know what it was like when she was younger, but by the time I met her, she was desperately trying to give it away. She was so full of wisdom and knowledge and experience. And she was just constantly oozing it everywhere she went, trying to give it away. A lot, the word desperate has some weird implications um, because she was also very realistic about how she offered that knowledge and she could, she could read people and she had a lifetime of experience of sharing that, you know, she knew who was actually receiving and who was actually going to listen and, and follow through in action. And, and that was, that was the thing is she was a poet and a storyteller and all those things. Um, but all that beauty came out of the real practical application of her seeing the truth of living in reciprocity and walking in beauty way of always giving back to life and having everything about her life, always coming back to that, that that was always the focus and the point. And that she said, everything I get, I turn it into hoop. She didn't care about money, but she used money and, you know, whatever else people wanted to give her. She said, everything I get, I turn it into hoop and, and people would look at her sideways for um, not being pure in some sense that they would expect, you know, that she would eat at McDonald's, she would shop at Walmart, she would, you know, get whatever she needed, however she needed to get her on her way to keep feeding life. And she was a prophet, you know, in that way, too, that she saw the changes. But, you know, in that same way that there's a lot of uh, indigenous prophecy out there about various things, and a lot of that wisdom just comes from observation that she that she spent so much time just paying attention and listening and observing the world and the changing climate and the way the plants behave and all of those things to a point where she could prophesize what was coming because if you paid attention it was written on the landscape and so she told those stories too of what was to come and how much worse it was it's was going to get and is going to get and is getting but yeah her work was her work was doing it but it was also 
trying to get as many people involved in it as possible. She talked a lot about being out there by herself and just wishing that more people would engage with it because the reality of being fully human is that we're pack animals. We can't, we can't be fully human. That's part of the reason she couldn't do it on her own. We can't be fully human on our own. We have to be in reciprocity with each other as well as the ecosystem in which we live. And she talked a lot about giving that away to, to a lot of people who would never do it, would never take it seriously. Hundreds and thousands of people that she talked to over the years that she offered her gifts to and who people who most of them never really saw it, never understood it, never really appreciated it. Some people who'd play with it for a minute and then walk away. And that was part of her big grief was trying to build that so that she could have community in that as well as the rest of us, you know, could do better and be more fully human and deserve our place on this planet. Finn's work in a nutshell was basically about planting back and, you know, living in a good way with, with the earth, you know, her, her work and what Finn was about could be uh, described about what she was against too, you know, to kind of get an idea of what Finn was for and what she did. It was easy to understand that by understanding what Finn hated most in the world and what she was the most against, you know, she hated with a passion. I've never met in anybody else before the ecocidal tendencies of our modern culture and, and the history of genocide and colonialism, you know, and so her life was basically, as she said, it committed to swimming upstream of the shit river that our culture is basically. And she always had this saying that, like, if you ever need a reference point of where to go, look at our culture and use it as a reverse barometer for yourself and just go the other way. And so her other way that she made her life's work was basically, as she liked to say, converting Babylon into hoop, which was subverting the resources of our modern culture and way of living into planting back these first foods and creating more abundance on the land rather than uh, killing the land. I don't know. I mean, you could basically call it ecological restoration, but I wouldn't call what Finn does as restoration in the sense of what people think of as restoration is. You know, Finn was an opportunist and she was always just looking to basically spread the abundance of these native first food plants. But she wasn't anti-invasive. She was very aware of the changing world we live in with climate change and with uh, colonization and ecocide and was basically just working with that and uh, planting food. You know, she just wanted food for the next generations. And I get, you know, one thing that could actually really describe what Finn was about was she was one of the only elders I've ever met who really saw how fucked our generation is and hated that and felt really shitty about that and acknowledged that with a very sincere look in the eye to us. I've had it 
that experience with her where she would look at me in the eye and just really acknowledge with this pain in her heart that our generation has been fucked over pretty hard and that she hated that and that it broke her heart. And that also fueled a lot of her hatred and misanthropic ways of being, which I can't blame her, you know? And so the beauty of what I thought she was doing was basically planting food for the next generations, you know, and making and and moving around these indigenous and non-indigenous food plants that are their habitat and ranges are changing with climate change. And she was just looking ahead for that and being the feet and legs that these plants don't have. Yeah. She talked about refugees without legs. Yeah. Yeah. And she was basically just, her life was about like being the legs of these plants and um, moving them around and, and helping them out. So, but really it was done. So like, not only with just the next generations of humans in mind, but just like, you know, I think a lot of the time when people think of, think about the next generations, they're doing so in a very anthropocentric, human centric way, you know? And, you know, when I do that and when Finn does that, thinking about the next generations it's thinking about the next generations of all life of the whole web of life and that was what it was about you know was basically planting food for the next generations i mean i would say primarily planting seeds for that's what always came across to me is her passion um sharing indigenous knowledge and practices around the land. Um, I also saw her as someone who gave voice to what she called, you know, the refugees without legs, the plants. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I would say that in essence, for me, that's, that's what I felt she did. Yeah, so Finn was profoundly dedicated to the ancient... Um, wild tending, land tending, uh, practices of the indigenous people of the mountain west, especially the Great Basin, um, especially Modoc, um, Nez Pierce, Klamath. Um, well, the Nez Pierce called themselves Nimupu. I don't know all the correct names. I mostly worked with the uh, Paiute and Shoshone people who call themselves Nima and Nui. Um, with her, she introduced me to a lot of people in Nevada. And um, she basically spent a large portion of her life traveling around um, on horses or sometimes on foot and a lot of times kind of hitching rides um, to kind of piece together all these different uh, fragments of indigenous land tending tradition and putting them into practice and her main focus was especially gathering and planting seeds or propagating roots um, and figuring out how to um, do them in a way that both address sort of the changes that have been happening with climate change and also um, with the degradation of the land through different kinds of ranching practices and develop de developments of various kinds. Um, so she was really trying to address what she called the hoop um, as a broken thing. You know, the hoop being the cycle of 
walking with the seasons and planting your gardens as you go. Um, and she had a very uh, profoundly spiritual understanding of that. Um, especially I would say in a kind of Christian indigenous hybrid that came from her life as originally being basically uh, an, a Christian missionary on horseback and then sort of traveling more and more toward this idea that Jesus's true teachings were essentially anti-civ and meaning civilization, anti-civilization and anti-industrialist and anti-agriculture and that really Jesus' true teachings were about becoming one with the creator's creation, which is nature and its kind of deepest intelligence and most efficient expression, which would be wild tending and, and indigenous permacultural practices. And she was very critical of indigenous people who had agricultural practices. She was very critical of um, indigenous people that weren't embodying these kinds of uh, ancient traditions. And she did have some compassion for why they aren't doing it, but she spent a lot of her life what, doing what she called firing up old engines, which <laughs> was a way of basically saying that she wanted to sort of threaten and uh, kind of guilt people, especially native people into reclaiming the traditions that she felt like were being discarded or left to the wayside. Um, I really don't agree with that. Um, that was kind of how we parted ways. Um, and I can see, you know, I would never want to shut her down because the way that she was doing it, that was really her purpose, her expression. And I have deep respect for that. But, um, I watched for many years the ways that it kind of was harmful to different communities. And I do, she believed that it was causing more help than it was causing harm. And I don't know. I don't know if I can know that, but what I do know is that I, I preferred a different path for myself. And so we kind of had a parting of ways, but she spent a lot of time going to reservations and using freaks like me and fair and other fairies that were even more freaky than me and, and other like kind of hippie types and white kids who are interested in what she was teaching and just basically being like, okay, well, because, because all you native people aren't doing this anymore. Um, I'm giving this to these white kids who want to learn it and they're going to like eat all your roots and poop all your berries and, and plant them in the waterways and you're just going to have to deal with it. And her goal she said over and over again was to manipulate them into um, reclaiming it and fighting us. She wanted to kind of basically create a war, you know, she she called herself a war shaman a lot. So, <laughs> so on one hand, she was very much, uh, you know, doing this beautiful planting back ritual, which was the part that I really fell in love with and constantly, you know, gathering tons of seeds and moving them all over the place. And she always had a different strategy she was trying out and, planting berries and roots and, and pine nuts. And that part was really beautiful to me. And then, um, and then trying to engage anybody in it who wanted to learn, we would go to reservations and do presentations. And we ended up doing a bunch of kids camps and I ended up independently doing that separately with children on a couple of reservations. Um, but very much through her guidance and mentorship, 
And then she had this other side, which was that she was really at war with what she called the longhouses of the law, the longhouses of the um, the national forest. Um, and then she was at war with civ in general, with civilization as it was, because she saw it as being at war with nature. So she she talked a lot about using uh, Jesus's technology to win geronimo's war and she really idealized geronimo in a lot of ways and um she had a lot of opinions about indigenous history and she was really trying to place herself into a hundreds of year old battle um she really said that walking onto these hoops that she was teaching us about was a way of sort of putting ourselves in the middle of this battlefield into this um firing ground and she said really you know like you're gonna have to be prepared to kill people you're gonna have to be prepared to be threatened to be killed by others and and basically she said that she wanted to see if they would kill us if this time when it's their own children meaning white people's children that are carrying these things would they kill us like they killed the people who tried to rebel against the the enforcement of putting indigenous people on reservations and um and kill you know kill us like they killed them so yeah it was really complex it was a complex situation it was sort of like you know Mm. in her teepee at night she would spend a lot of time strategizing about what moves she would make next to sort of stir everybody up and get conflicts going and she did spend a lot of time trying to stir up conflicts in our own little groups too. And between different people who were doing different kinds of hoop things over the years. Um, and it was always about like sort of this ego thing of who's doing it the best, who's doing it right. And she was always the only one who was doing it right. And then eventually sometimes she would sort of let other people, uh, you know, she would give approval to other people, but, but in only in small ways. And it was always, you know, we were always a failure and her vision was always a failure. And, um, and it was always our fault, all of us, all the other people. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, she was, she was a firecracker. She'd be up all night just talking about like how she was going to, you know, basically pit this cop against the national forest or get this rancher to like let us onto their land. And then she was going to like get, get like catch them and making back backdoor deals with the forest service or whatever. And, um, but it was always for the purpose of bringing back these old ways of trying to make it popular again. I mean, she said she wanted to see 5,000 people out there living nomadically and eating, eating and gathering and planting and tending on these, these old traditional garden routes and and mending the hoop putting these paths these networks of pathways back together um that was her real vision and she loved horses she loved having um horses as a central part of that nomadic culture complicated yep i that that's a word that's coming up over and over again during um (laughs) yeah as you can expect (laughs) yeah yeah she is real complex character many layered um that's part of what i loved about her (laughs) oh totally totally yeah yeah finn's work was all about planting back she was deeply in love with these plants of the 
Great basin. In my knowing her, there might have been other times she was in love with different plants or different regions. And a way of life that went along with it, which was a, a way of life that was um, reciprocal. So understanding that, that you take from the world in order to continue, and that's kind of what it's all about. But it's not just a taking. There's the reciprocity part about making sure that everything else can have its own life as well. So she's living out there mostly on her own for a long time, uh, meeting different people. She was adopted by some Shoshone aunties in her 20s, I think, hitchhiking. (laughs) Randomly, she got taken home to somebody's place on the res and introduced to the aunties. And they shared with her uh, things about planting these wild foods and caring for them, how to propagate them, uh, who they were. So uh, I think it was it was the last 10 years of her life being out on the horses, she was uh, decided or felt called uh, to open her bundle, the bundle being what she knew and what she was, the life she'd been living. So the bundle she had to share... Uh, mostly was focused around the planting back of these things and caring for the things that sustain you and doing it in a way that's not privatized, behind fences, uh, just for you. So a lot of the things she was planting were uh, meant for the following generations. Uh, Many of the plants, uh, the biscuit roots that she introduced me and other people to, you know, some of them can live to be 100 years old, and they're not really ready to harvest for, I don't know, 10, 20 years at least. <laughs> so, yeah, mostly it was this idea of reciprocity and planting so that you could sustain yourself and sustain everybody else um, with you in that pursuit. Do you think that um, the term rewilding would uh, at all apply to her work? I mean, sure. I, I mean, I, I just kind of looked into the term rewilding the other day. I hadn't actually looked into it before. I've heard of the term a lot. Um, but I think, I mean, herself, she kind of adopted different terms as they came along. Mm-hmm. She was finding ways for connection in that. Permaculture, rewilding, wild tending. So, yeah, I, I think it could fit in with rewilding for sure. This idea of, uh, I mean, the wild domestic dichotomy is a funny line to discuss it's not as black and white as we might think that's how i've been seeing it lately but um yeah i'd say that um there's definitely a spirit of rewilding in the work that she was doing question four describe a time you experienced friction or tension within Being around Granny was frequently about friction and tension, but besides that, we had one open falling out, though it didn't last forever. I think it was the summer of 2016. I know it was the end of her days traveling on her own with horses. Nikki and I were planning to head out to eastern Oregon anyway when Nikki got a call from Granny, who was camped out on a ranch in Harney County. We headed out right away, though we made a quick stop at the Malheur Wildlife Refuge, where some ranchers had staged an occupation of the federally owned land in January 2016. When we found Granny, she was set up in a tarp tent among stacks of baled hay. Her horses were penned nearby. The property was an enormous ranch owned and operated by Mormons. She was in an agitated state. 
She knew that she couldn't live the horse lifestyle anymore because it had just gotten to be too hard on her body. And this was a big deal for her, understandably. So she was scheming about what to do next and was seeking our help. Over the course of a couple of days, she pitched her case, which was neither coherent nor fully formed, but definitely entailed loyalty. Eventually, a friend was found who would take on her horses, and the ranchers generously offered to transport them in their trailer, even though it was a long drive. Granny herself would be accompanying them and wanted our commitment to her next stage in life. I considered it, and considered it seriously, but my own answer was no. I wasn't ready to pledge myself or my time in that way. I respected her enough that I wanted to be honest, even though I suspected she would dislike the answer. And dislike it she did. She threw a tantrum, and we parted ways. For the next little while, I was the whipping boy. I accepted the status, though. I knew her well enough to know there was no escape. I also refused to feed the fire, figuring that, sooner or later, it would blow over. And blow over it did. At some point later, at least a few months later, though maybe it was a year, we met again, and it was okay. We found some kind of even keel. I knew that she was a con artist, and she knew that I knew. And what's more, she knew that I didn't mind, that it wasn't a deal-breaker, that I accepted her for who she was. So after that, we got along fine. She didn't try to manipulate me, at least not very hard, and it was the most enjoyable phase of our relationship yet. It felt like a rite of passage with her, actually, to have a fight and move on, and I'm definitely not the only person to report an experience like that with her. Definitely not the only person. Yo, when I first thought about that when I was like, huh... I, don't, I can't really. And then I was like, yeah, okay. There's, there's a few in there. <laughs> <laughs> I was, when I first, after I first met Finn, I was kind of like, you know, off and on in touch with her. And she'd be like, okay, you can come out with us, you know, whenever you want, baby. We do this every season. And I planned actually that I was going to go out with her. I had done Lynx's project in like 2013. And then the following season, I wanted to, I wanted to go and do some of that, you know, get that introduction to, to, whatever what Fidisha might call the hoop you know just hey here's these landscapes here's these plants here's the horses but i decided instead someone hipped me to colin who is someone that was living and 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 kind of i guess you could say studying or whatever however you want to put it with with granny for a while there and spent a winter camp with her and and i started talking to colin and then we we kind of hit it off and it was like yeah we'll, we'll we made tentative plans that I was going to travel with Colin instead. And Granny didn't like it when I told her that. She was like, she's like, oh, oh, you're going to travel with Colin. Like, okay, baby, yeah, you go ahead and do that. We decolonizing over here. You know, she had little, <laughs> so she was even clever in her, like, resentments. You know, she would come up with these little memes. <laughs> but Colin's able to laugh about it all now, you know. I read him that, that spoken word piece, and he really enjoyed it. And he had a lot of fun with her. It wasn't all like that, but um, I would say that's probably the, the moment the, of that really pops out when I say, "Huh, when did I have friction with with Granny?" That was probably it. Do you think was she was she jealous that you were spending time with someone else, or she didn't approve of his approach to things, or what do you think that was about? I think it was just plain old. She just didn't like Colin. You know, it's like that. Uh-huh. Granny was. She'd say, "If you don't get thick, you don't got to get thin." You know, and I think that was her like callous against life because she'd been hurt so often in her life. That was her way to say like. Mm-hmm. I'll be your friend, baby, as long, you know, for whatever it takes to convince you of that. And then when we ain't friends, we ain't friends. Don't fucking talk to me. Don't look at me. Don't call me. She just wrote him off because he wanted to do his own thing. He had some issues with whatever, however Granny did things. They just didn't, they just, 
they didn't jive, you know, at first they did. But when you live with somebody in close quarters in a teepee and there's like, you know, four people living in there in a 20 foot teepee in the fucking Sparta winter, you know, it's like, yeah, okay. Granny called that, you know, you fucking squeeze a grape, you're going to get some juice, you know, you're going you're gonna to apply some pressure. You're going to see where the fucking places that ain't working are. Right. And that's just what happened there. It just fell apart. And Colin was like, okay, yeah, I'm going to go do my own thing. But he definitely got the intro and the idea to do horses and stuff from Finn, uh-huh. and then went on and did his own thing with that, of course. Right. But Phoenicia would even say, you know, I'm not your third leg, baby. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not your cane. Don't lean on me. I ain't mm-hmm. your fucking tripod. Like, you come and learn what you need, and then you go, go on and go do it. I've said a lot in conversations about Finn because of the whole picture of her um, and, and particularly when talking about her to people who know me and how radical I am in my beliefs um, that I made exceptions for Finn that I would never make for anyone else. Mm -hmm. And um, my one real matter of contention with her was her use of the N word. And um, ah, right. Mm-hmm. I have to clarify that um, she used mm-hmm. this word, and I never once heard her use it in a way that was specifically to denigrate Black people or to even casually describe an actual Black person or, um, yeah, in a derogatory way towards Black people or a Black person. Um, if she had been that way, I would not have been able to make exception for that. Um, But the fact that she used it at all was still problematic to me. And, um, and most of the time that she used the N word that I heard, I heard her use it to describe herself and what she was trying to articulate was the ways in which she had been, oppressed and hurt and traumatized and attacked and denigrated and abused throughout her lifetime from childhood. Um, and specifically as a trans woman and, um, and so it came up on this drive to Washington where, um, you know, she said something um, in our conversation, it was just me and her in the car and I was driving. Um, she said something in conversation where she used the N word to describe herself. And, um, and I pushed back gently and, um, and what followed was about 45 minutes of Finn angrily ranting at me <laughs> about her life and experience and, um, and how I had no right to judge her and how I couldn't possibly understand and all these things and all the ways that she'd been abused. And, um, and there were a couple moments where I sort of gently interjected and said, um, yes, that's true, Finn. And it's still not the same as if you were a black trans woman. <laughs> um And that word is still harmful to black people in a way that it's not to you. And, um, 
And yeah, like I said, she, she went off for about 45 minutes and I mostly just let her talk and, um, and she was very angry. And at the end of it, I, you know, I just listened to her. And at the end of it, um, I said, I hear you, Finn. And I still disagree with you. Yeah, no, I, I heard her use the word a couple of the N word a couple of times too to describe herself. And where my mind went with it immediately was the old John Lennon and Yoko Oko song from the early seventies. Woman is the N word of the of the world, right? And I'm like, ah, this is a different way of using the word that dates back to then to like the like like sixties, early seventies, and that's. To me, I was like, okay, she's using it in that sense. And I'm like, okay, I can hear that she's using it in that sense. But most people today, and especially most people my age or younger, would not be able to hear the word that way, you know? And so... But even then, even in the 60s, when John Lennon said that, it bothered Black people. Like, that's the thing. It did. It did. And white people, for me and Finn sitting together, it doesn't hurt me personally like this you know directly the same way it 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 would affect a black person and um, yeah. and and that and but that's also part of the reality of finn is that um she intentionally shocked people and she intentionally right. pushed people's comfort and 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 edges and all of those things and she you know i disagree with her trying to claim the n-word for herself um but part of her overall um persona um and expression was a reclaiming and repurposing of um derogatory language um right. you know she called herself tranny granny she called herself a tranny and um and that word has been used to do a lot of harm to people as well in the world um, and it's a different thing for someone who is actually a trans woman to claim that word for herself. And similarly, so, you know, I, I identify as queer and I um, love the word queer. And I am one of the people who loves to reclaim the word queer, which has certainly been a slur for a very long time. And a lot of people have experienced very serious harm and even death at the hands of people saying the word queer as a slur. Um and I don't particularly like the word faggot, but that was Finn's catch-all, right? I used queer as an umbrella term, which bothers some people. And Finn used faggot as her umbrella term to refer to the whole LGBTQ rainbow, right? And that might bother yeah. a lot of people. But uh, but to me, it was a sense of like, well, you know, as a trans woman, um, you know, who in her younger years, uh, you know, would have appeared to most people as a gay man um that that's a word that people would use towards her and it's fully within her reality to reclaim that word that you know was used against her um but uh yeah the n-word is it's just different (laughs) no i i think it's different too yeah and and i also noticed you know you know she used the word faggot obviously and and that's a word i i've in, in my in my in my age group of 
you know, gay liberation and all this sort of thing that, you know, for that dates more to the eighties and the nineties. That was one of the words we were reclaiming back then, you know, some of us. And um, I, I definitely feel comfortable saying, you know, I'm a faggot, especially to particular people who the word's going to shock, you know? Yeah. Um, and <laughs> also because the word was used against me so hatefully so many times, you know? So, so I really, that, that was part of my solidarity with Finn. And, and, and one reason I felt close to her was because she used that word, you know? And then, you know, there was a, a time when one of the folks who was hanging out with her, who's uh, a cishet guy, used the word. And I was like, mm, no, right? no, yeah. I, no, you, no. <laughs> that's that's part, part, of my, part of my, like, you know, um, part of my navigating uh, existing in a world where Finn doesn't live anymore. Part of my difficulty mm-hmm. in that, um, in relating to her community that she built around her and the, the extended family, as it were, um, mm-hmm. is that um, a lot of the people who I've met who are friends with her or disciples of her um, are cishet people um, who feel comfortable using some of that language because she used it. Um, and that, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't sit quite right the same way. And, and they don't no. really get it. It was actually a conversation I had at her memorial camp um, with somebody that I think that, you know, a lot of, a lot of queer people, LGBTQ people do this, right. It's part of um, it's part of our survival is that you call yourself every bad thing possible so that there's nothing left for them to call you. Right. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. she said all the shit that someone could possibly say about her before they had a chance to say it. So then what are you going to say? Right. (laughs) (laughs) And it wasn't about, you know, saying, you know, oh, I love it when people say these horrible things about me, or you should say these horrible things about me. It was about saying, you know, you can't fucking touch me. Anything that you yeah. think you're going to say to me, I already know. I've already heard it before. You know, <laughs> like I could, I could come up with worse things than you, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, uh, I haven't, I haven't seen this particular brother in, in, in person. And if he does say the word around me, it's me like, you know, until you suck to some dick, you don't get to say that word, okay? Like, well, you know that Finn did say, say uh, that that uh, uh, all all straight men should experience being penetrated at some point in their life, just so they could have an understanding of uh, of that reality, Absolutely. right? So you know. Towards the end of the summer that I spent with Finn on the tablelands, Finn. Okay, I guess this was hard, and this was this was like this was a hard experience because you know Finn, she went off and you know did a bunch of meth and came back to the High Desert Wild Tending Network property basically to come down, and this was like against their policy like they actually have a visitor policy that is like a real document that says like you you know because they're a, a non-profit and they're like this is we have a policy like this place is not a rehab you know this place is not 
where you come to come down. You know, this is like a drug-free zone. And Finn came there to come down, and there was so much tension and friction. Finn was trying to stage a coup and get trying to get everybody wrapped up in what she called a hostile takeover of the Sand Crane Center, which from what I had been told by multiple different people was not the first time that she had attempted such a hostile takeover. Uh, the, the humbling thing about this whole experience and why there was so much friction and why it really made me take a step back and not, you know, demonize what Finn was doing was I just saw how vulnerable Finn was. She is old and having health issues and her body is, was, you know, failing on her and she lived in her little truck and, you know, though she made it seem so fun to live in her little truck, it was hard on her. And like just being in that kind of survival mode, I couldn't take care of Finn, you know, like, and that was the problem was that Finn needed a place where people could help take care of her and like help meet her needs and a place to like live and just be an elder, you know, cause I knew that she didn't have long to live, you know, like death was her mission in life at that point. You know, she was she was ready to die and she was living her life in a way that was going to make that happen. You know, she was really hard on her body and I saw how vulnerable she was, but I also saw like how she made it impossible for people to take care of her and help actually give her a safe place to live because she made people too miserable because she created so much unnecessary drama. And, 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 and I saw that that was coming from a place of trauma and Finn and I didn't I, I didn't have like hard feelings against Finn for it. I was like fuck Finn because she told me a lot of her life story and I you know and I'm sensitive to people's trauma and how that makes them behave in a certain way and that was hard holding that and also just like setting my own boundary and being like I can't do this like I have to integrate everything that's happened this summer and my mind is overloaded with Finn's voice because it's like all you ever hear all day, every day when you're hanging out with Finn, which isn't always bad. But after a while, like when Finn gets in these moods, you know, you just like it gets old to just hear the shit all day, every day, you know. But then in those shit bombs, you know, she'll drop that like a lesson of some serious wisdom that made it all worth it. But also you had I had to take space from that. But. I love Finn and I still love Finn and I miss her, but that was hard. That was, that was pretty hard that seeing that whole thing happen. You know, I'm not, I wasn't mad or anything. I was just like, fuck, this is complicated. When I first um, contacted her via Facebook messenger and she sent me this incredibly kind of um aggressive reply basically accusing me of being with the fbi or the cia and what what did i want from her and why did i you know yeah just sort of very much you know who the fuck are you and it i remember getting it sort of my heart racing like her language was was incredibly like oh my god sort of yeah just very aggressive and um I kind of like slept on it that night and just thought, oh, wow, like maybe maybe she doesn't really, you know, want anyone to reach out to her. 
And then I thought, well, I'll just explain who I am. And so I just explained, you know, I'm a writer and I'd love to meet you and I'd love to speak with you. And and then she sort of calmed down. And um, as I said before, I think she was never like nasty or aggressive with me afterwards. I kind of feel or I felt with Finisi that you were sort of like guilty until proven innocent. And um, she decided I was innocent. Like, I think she just decided that. I was going to be someone she would trust and she just trusted me and I trusted her. And uh, yeah. And I think again, because a lot of our friendship was long distance, so it was done via like messages and writing. And um, so perhaps she had time to think before speaking, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So I didn't get a lot of like her reactions. I got, you know, her sort of thinking about stuff and then writing to me kind of. Right. So, so even online, there was never a, a time when it was uh, tense or whatever. No, no. Well, you had a very exceptional experience with her in that way. Yeah. I mean, she would bitch to me about people. There was a lot of that. And I think the thing is, for some bizarre reason, we had a very similar sense of humor and a sense mm. of the absurd. Mm-hmm. And when she would like go off on one, I would just laugh. Like it just kind of made me laugh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and then she would just laugh, and it just kind of um, it just kind of diffused it somehow. Oh man! Well, I've had a lot, um, and we were very close. I mean, me and her for about ten years, we spent a lot of time together, and. 10 years. I had a, yeah, about 10 years. I mean, I was friends with her longer than that. Um, But towards the last few years of her life, we definitely were, we drifted apart. Um, It wasn't really because we didn't like each other, at least in my, my experience. Um, It was because we had a real difference because I come from a lineage of, uh, of healers of various kind of alternative doctor, naturopathic doctor types on both sides of my family and also my step parents and many of my aunts and uncles and even my grandparents on both sides of my family. So I've been running away from that my whole twenties and hanging out with Finn was kind of part of that. Cause I just sort of wanted to get away from society. I didn't want to be a part of it. And in a lot of ways working with healing for me, I kept trying to focus on it as, um, you know, as the way that I was approaching earth tending, land tending and working with Mm -hmm. plants. And so I thought that I could kind of skirt away from the people side of that. But learning from Finn was a big part of what showed me that people and plants are kind of inseparable, at least when you're a human trying to relate with plants, then you can't really get away from the human part of that, you know. There's you have to address it somehow. So and Finn understood that, but her way of addressing that was warfare. And my way of addressing that was healing. And I didn't feel like it was necessarily in conflict because I really respected her warfare and I felt like it was her right and it made a lot of sense. Her position in history, her position in the world, her experience being a transgendered woman in the sixties and seventies, you know, like 
her whole life was a picture that to me made perfect sense why she would be at war. And I didn't want to take that away from her or even contradict it, but I needed to be able to walk alongside her with, um, with my ways being okay to do, like without having to fight all the time, if I wasn't going to pick up the gun and shoot somebody or whatever, you know, and metaphorically, Mm -hmm. she never tried to force me to murder, but she talked about it a lot. And eventually I just told her like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to pick a side and start, you know, fighting the way that you're fighting. Like I have a different purpose in this. And if you can't respect that, then we can't walk together. Like we can be doing it in our own ways. And the way that that really kind of came to a head was there was this place called the Sand Crane Sanctuary that, um, or wait, we don't call it a sanctuary. What did we call it back then? It was Sand Crane Learning Center. And, um, but anyway, mostly people call it the Sand Crane Center now. And, um, out there in Eastern Oregon. Yeah, in Eastern Oregon. And she had been, of course, very instrumental. Like she was the whole reason why that place came to be. Um, A friend of hers decided to buy that place for us and um, make it kind of a base in this pretty prolific area for um, wild foods and wild tending. And so uh, she was there for several years, but the guy who was buying it for us, he eventually, you know, he wasn't, he was closer to her age and he had a lot of criticisms toward her about how she was relating with the younger folk and that he kept saying like, we need, we need you to be 80% grandma and 20% war shaman. But right now you're being 80% war shaman and 20% grandma. And it's not working. Mm-hmm. It's just too much fighting all the time. And it's exhausting us. Like every single day was another fight, you know? And, um, he eventually just, you know, enforced it and asked her to leave. And so she decided that she was at war with Sand Crane and started making a lot of threats on the internet about, um, like, basically, she was going to turn us into the FBI for this or that. She was going to call the cops on us. She was going to, like, get a hitman on somebody. Some of these things were rumors. Some of them were things that she actually was saying herself. And she was accusing the elder who was living there um, of raping people and I was there at the time when this was all happening. And I was asking like the people she was saying had said that they were raped and all this stuff, if that was true and how they felt about their names being, you know, projected in this way. And it was all just lies. It was all bullshit and just games that she was playing with people's heads, you know? And basically Mm. I came to this point where I said, I just said, grandma, I can't support you in this. Like, you know, it's, it's just too, it's too, um, destructive like i understand if you're pissed i understand if you want resolution i understand if it's not fair that they asked you to leave on some levels all of that i could support you in but doing this sort of like you know violent sort of threats and this kind of warfare that that is really trying to destroy something that essentially was a creative resource that she eventually came back to surprisingly and live, you know, lived there for little chunks of time toward the end of her life. Um, and we really did want to find a way to include her, but the guy who owned the place, you know, he just really, he was fed up. Like he couldn't find his own mental wellness in her presence. And so, I told her, you know, I was, we had this really long conversation about it and 
And basically it kind of led us to understand that we were really walking different directions. Cause she couldn't, I told her, you can't use me anymore as a pawn in your warfare. I'm not going to play along anymore. Cause I had definitely enabled it at times. I hadn't had enabled her abusive behaviors. I'd let her hit me, you know, things like that and sort of let her get away with it. Even though we would talk about it and we would resolve things. It was always sort of, she was on top, you know, like whatever Mm -hmm. she said goes And at that point, I just said, you know what, I'm walking my own way. Like, thank you for everything you taught me. I don't expect anything from you. You do you. Like, I really respect you as you are, but um, I can't just pretend like this is okay. Like, you can't just attack all these people who have been giving us so much. I mean, they were still, at the time that this was happening, they were still sending her so many supplies, so much money. These elders that she was attacking, you know, her contemporaries, her friends, her old friends that she felt really rejected by. And she was threatening to call the FBI on them and stuff like that, which I mean, probably wouldn't have actually led to anything, but it's still just, it was really shocking and it was freaking a lot of people out. Right. So that was the, that was kind of the last time that we really, um, that we really were, in alignment together as a team because for a long time it felt like we were on a team that we were like extended family and that was when we drew the the line in the sand and i still spent time with her we would have camps together sometimes i'd go visit her and we would we even taught together at a primitive skills gathering we did a whole series of like daily workshops about the hoop and and that was fine. I mean, we still, I still felt cooperative with her on some levels, but there was a pretty big boundary. And she kind of knew that in a way I was a lost cause because she was really interested in people that she could work with to fulfill her purpose, which did involve warfare. And I just, I said enough is enough. So. Can you describe a time when you experienced friction or tension with them? <laughs> Uh, yes, I can. There's a few different times. Uh, I mean, our, our, our introduction when I, I went out and spent time with her and uh, some other people on horses was a pretty intense time. Uh, there was a lot of friction there because she was, in hindsight, I can see that she was uh, really quite frightened by the idea of not being able to be on the horses anymore. Uh, her body was broken down too much that she couldn't actually pack uh, well enough on her own or chase the horses down or even ride that long. Um, and I think she wasn't feeling uh, that it was going to be possible to do that. She wasn't finding the community that she needed. So, yeah, there was some different friction there. Oh, my gosh. So I, I didn't grow up with horses or anything. I think maybe I had been on a horse once as a kid and a camel once. I mean, that was kind of my riding extent uh, for a day each. And um, I went and spent a few months living with them out there before spring ride out and um, did some learning about being on the horses a little bit and how to pack them. And it was all very new for me. Um, but they tried to show me some of the ropes and, um, literally, like, literally the ropes. Not tying part of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not tying, but there was just so much tension going on at that, that point in time. Um, and I think that some of it, well, I, I know that some of it ended up getting, uh, projected onto me. Um, but I think it was like maybe my 
fourth or fifth time on a horse that we were leaving, and I was put in charge of a five-horse pack string going down the steep, steep grade in eastern Oregon. And I knew I wasn't in control. I knew I hadn't learned that part yet and how important it is for the horses to understand that you're in charge and you know what you're doing. <laughs> they knew that. <laughs> so we're going down this steep grade and uh, I can't really keep them in a straight line or anything. And um, I ended up getting off of the horse because that felt a little better and then trying to lead them that way. And it was just a little uh, pretty terrifying, actually, to be going down that grade. But we made it to the bottom, and I was I was having trouble being on the old horse, Vitilago. He's a super sweet guy, but, you know, I I know that there was a lot of my chemistry going on there where it's just I'm making them more skittish because I don't know what I'm doing. I'm afraid. Um, but I remember getting off, and Finn was in a truck, I think my truck, and uh, she pulled alongside wondering what the problem was, you know, and I said, I'm, I'm just really not in charge here, and I, I want to stop. You know, I want to do it. And she was fucking furious. She was like, get back on that horse, bitch, or go home. And I was like, okay, I'll go home. And she was like, get back on the horse, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) I was terrified. And so I got back on the horse because I didn't really feel like I had a choice at that moment. And um, it was a really rough ride. I don't know, the last couple miles, mile maybe. (laughs) I don't really know. But uh, being on the horse, and I didn't know much about his personality yet either, that he's he's kind of a trotter when he gets behind. and So he's trotting, and I feel like he wants to throw me off. So it was terrifying. At one point, I got off again. I'm holding on to the rope, trying to stop him from behind. and Oh, yeah, it was horrible. So, yeah, that was a, that was a pretty high-intensity moment with Finn. She kicked me in the ass once, too, because she felt like I was deliberately moving slow or something like that. Uh I mean, in hindsight, I I kind of feel like uh, she was able to pinpoint underlying patterns that people seem to have, Mm -hmm. you know, about trying to make other people do the work for them or um, being passive-aggressive or stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. In my first few months of hanging out with her, like out with the horses and and everything, um, I was accused of a lot of those things. And uh, I learned a lot from that experience, one being that I'm the type of person who takes that stuff in and tries to see if it's true (laughs) Uh, a lot of the time when I don't need to because I'm not actually doing that. Um, So it was, uh, in the end, beneficial experience for me uh, to be able to learn more about myself and also understand what she was trying to get at, that those patterns are probably pretty common in how people interact with each other. So... So, yeah, the, the horse thing, get kicked in the ass. I think she, maybe she slapped me once, too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds horrible, right? But but there was just, I, I understand it in hindsight that, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of her fear of losing her life way was happening for her. And a lot of it wasn't personal, even though it seemed so at the time. She thought I had um, gone to move something that her fingers were underneath. Mm before she was ready, but I thought she had said go. So I was just misunderstanding. <laughs> um, I guess I guess one more tension story. I, I think that in a part, like, tension epitomized a part of the relating with Finn. Mm-hmm. It's not the whole story at all, but I'm, I'm sure that most people who spent quite a bit of time with her would experience some of that. And I think that tension has the potential to break, but also to transform. 
And I, I remember, you know, before meeting Finn, living in a household with a bunch of people and realizing something about this dynamic of tension that it comes about because there's something to be addressed and something needs to shift a little. And I remember being disappointed because it seemed like it always broke things, but that there was still this potential for it changing things. So, um, so yeah, these, these stories of tension, I'm sure everybody who's known her has, uh, they're a part of that whole dy- dynamic. And I think um, besides relating with Finn, like we're facing those things in lots of ways in our world. But maybe the last place of big tension I remember with Finn was it was soon after I had been out with them uh, on the horses and uh, she had split ways with her young comrade there at the time. Um, and I had left her out in the woods by herself. Uh, she seemed fine with it. She was ready for it. And I just had to go. The tension had become too much for me. Um, but uh, you and I actually went back to visit her. She was at some ranch. And um, she was still really frustrated, realizing that she was really at the end of her horse rope. Uh, she couldn't do it anymore. These uh, very nice ranchers offered to truck her horses back up a couple hundred miles to a, a friend's place where she could take them until they could find a new home. Or no, actually, yeah, they trucked the horses up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she got a ride with them, and we were going to follow her. And it was just, like, still a little too fresh for me. <laughs> so I needed to, I just wanted to take a night, you know. So I wanted to just take a night in camp on the way up there. And um, I remember she was so mad about that. And there was no room to express the frustration I was feeling or the, the vulnerability I was feeling and how I just needed a moment and that I wasn't actually leaving her in a lurch. She was landing at friend's place, like everything was fine, you know. And I remember being so frustrated about that. It took a couple of days to prepare to go over to where she was and... Um, I was going to meet her all prepared to just be like, hey, like, what the fuck? Like, I am I need to be recognized here a little bit for my vulnerability. And uh, I remember she just looked at me before I could say anything when I saw her. She's watching TV. She said, you know, I'm way more interested in this fucking cartoon than I am in any of your feelings. And, you know, that, that cut really deep in a way. Well, it did. But there was something freeing about it, too. There was something broke to where I realized that I wasn't going to get some of the emotional needs from this person that I might have. And so I didn't need to try to get them there. And in a way, that kind of became, it set the stage for how I was able to have just a loving relationship with her was to realize the limitations of the extent of of um, connection we could have. I won't say depth because I think you can have different kinds of depth and different kinds of relatings, even if it's not encompassing everything that you think a deep relationship should encompass. Um, so yeah, that was the that was the last like big frustrating <laughs> tension <laughs> that I experienced with Finn. Uh, there was always like. A little bit of attention around in, in being with her, but uh, a part of that is that she was a magician. <laughs> she was working with that energy of leverage. Um, 
but yeah, so uh, some of that, my experience with her was, was some benefits of tension showing you some different things, in part by breaking some some avenues that you think things should be in, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Can you say a little bit more about the um, magician and playing with leverage? Yeah. So this was this was a part of the lesson that I really got from Finn. Um, uh, more, you know, above and beyond or as a part of the, the planting um, bundle that she was. Um, the part about not being afraid of authority was understanding that there isn't a hierarchy. And I remember she saying, she said something once about how most people are responding to the color of authority, not to the actual law of authority. So uh, part of that means that some people are responding to the color of authority when something isn't actually a law, like it's not actually something required for you to abide by. And the other part is that you're just um, uh, responding to authoritative positions. So the hierarchy that makes you kind of panic when you see a cop or um, having to defend yourself or, you know, to a force service person or somebody, you know. So the leverage part was was understanding that everybody's just kind of like pretending due diligence is what she would say, as that people find themselves in these positions and then, you know, the color or the air of their position surrounds them. But ultimately, they're still scared and don't know what's going on either. Like, it's not it's not something that came from them, from their own understanding of how things work and what makes sense. It's something that was handed to them that they're trying to uphold. And in that way, it's harder to wholly <laughs> um, be behind it and actually be an authority because it's not coming from a real understanding. It's coming from an ideal. Uh, so the, the leverage part was... Picking out these these places where a claim is made by an authoritative organization and knowing that they're not actually living up to it, you start showing them how they're not living up to it. And a part of how you do that is by doing what they say they're doing. So, you know, with different, like the BLM or Forest Service, they have different planting projects or restoration projects um, and claims about uh, what they're doing and how much they're doing, and um, showing them up, basically, how they're not doing it. So you're kind of like holding them to it to get them to respond uh, more favorably. So in, in some way, I guess it's a, it's a form of manipulation. Um, it's also uh, an awareness of just being able to see through that stuff and just instead of just blindly responding to, oh, they must have it figured out or... They're the authority, so they must know more of what they're talking about than I would. And so that that leverage part was trying to make it all more an even playing field, again, in a way, uh, which I think is a very important step if we hope to have any clarity about how to have relationship with our world again. Because the guise of authority is that we're having relationship through these hierarchies or channels of how it's supposed to be, which is still separated from just having a relationship yourself. And yeah, if we have any hope of having a different world that's more in harmony and more species get to continue living <laughs> and we keep getting to be able to get what we need, um, 
we need to even that playing field, especially in our own hearts. So that's it was a really big takeaway for me. Um, I feel like I, in the past, facing the uh, deceit <laughs> of those of the bureaucracy and um, organizations that I uh, emotionally burned out and couldn't interact at all with it. I basically dropped out for 10 years because um, it was too emotionally painful. And um, part of the healing work that I'm feeling in the moment is very much in that line of understanding leverage and the value of manipulation in that way. It's not to get somebody to do what I want because I don't know what we're supposed to do, <laughs> but um, to at least be honest about it so that we can start from there. So, yeah. This is the end of part two of Rebel with the Cause, remembering Phoenicia Medrano, an episode of the Voices for Nature and Peace podcast. One final part remains. 